The first reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am Who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt 
to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now... Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbour and any woman who lives in a house for silver and gold jewellery and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The second reading is from Exodus chapter 6 and from verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptian hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to lead us in a prayer as we begin. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you have made yourself known. And we pray, Father, as we reflect on that truth this morning, that you would help us to see the great wonder 
and the great privilege and the great joy that is. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am thankful to be part of a church where we prioritize salvation. We believe, don't we, that to become a Christian is to be no less than saved. And we believe in declaring that truth to the people around us. But I wonder what you would say to the question, why is it we are saved? What are we saved for? What's the whole point of salvation? Now, I guess some of us will think to ourselves, well, it's about escaping judgment and the judgment to come. And of course, it is wonderful, isn't it, that there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. But notice that doesn't answer the question, does it? Why are we saved? It answers the question what we saved from. It doesn't answer the question what we're saved for. And the trouble is, if we don't have a clear understanding of what we're saved for, well, it can leave us feeling, to put it frankly, a bit aimless. It can feel like we've been saved to sit in the airport waiting room. We know our departure is going to come at some point, And in the meantime, we're kind of sitting here, living out our lives. And understandably to our culture, that doesn't seem a very attractive message. Of course, it's good news that the Lord Jesus uh, uh, takes on himself the judgment to come. But without that sense of why he does that, well, at best can be confusing, and at worst is unattractive. But these chapters this morning in Exodus are all about showing us the why of salvation, what salvation is for. See, the big question I've had in my prep uh, is why have we not got to the plagues yet? See, at the end of chapter 2, we thought everything was ready, didn't we? We saw the suffering, we saw that God heard, he remembered his covenant, and it felt like everything was ready to go. But instead, we get four and a half chapters of kind of pre-match or pre-plague build-up. Why not get straight on with the action? But the more I've looked at this, the more I've realized that is precisely the point. Because God doesn't want us to get straight on with the action before we understand what that action is for. See, salvation isn't actually the biggest priority of this book. That salvation is just a step along a road to something else. Salvation has got a purpose. And these chapters are all about showing us what that purpose is and why it matters. But we're going to see that knowing is central. Secondly, knowing is the problem. And thirdly, how knowing is possible. First of all, knowing is central. See, this um, incident with the burning bush, uh, it's, a, it's a fun read, isn't it? Uh, and um, I guess it sounds very strange to our ears. And um, there's all sorts of questions about it. Why is there a bush on fire, or rather not on fire? Uh, why does the Lord effectively use this as a Bluetooth speaker? And why uh, does um, he choose to appear to Moses in this way? But interestingly, the focus isn't actually on the pyrotechnic show. Rather, it's on the identity of the speaker. See, notice how God introduces himself in chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6, he says this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, um, notice he doesn't just say, hello, I'm God. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, 
excuse me. Why uh, does he introduce himself that way? Well, remember what we saw last week, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the beneficiaries of God's promise to bless the world and to bless his people. And so what God's saying here is not just, hello, I'm God, but I am that God who made these promises you've heard about. I'm the God who has promised to bless your people and bless this world. But actually, that, that introduction has, has actually got far-reaching consequences. Because look uh, down the page to Moses' question and see what God says in answer. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, there is a lot going on in these verses, and I I want us to kind of drill down on them for a couple of minutes. Uh, So just uh, bear with me. I'm going to go fairly quickly. See, first of all, notice here that Moses' question, what is your name, doesn't kind of get answered directly. See, he says to God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. Now, I've got some experience of choosing children's names. I've chosen them for three of my children. And um, let me say, we've spent hours scrolling through name after name after name, and some of us will have had that experience. But let me say that there was one name I never even thought of choosing, and it's I Am. I don't think it even features in the baby name books, because it isn't really a name, is it? It's uh, not, um, it doesn't really sound like a name, but that's the point. God, in one sense, isn't nameable. See, my middle son's called Samuel, and um, it comes from the Hebrew word here to hear, uh, Samar, and then El is the Hebrew word for God, so it's Samuel. And um, it reminds us that he kind of points, in a way, to, to the fact that God hears. See, he's defined by something else, something outside of himself. But here's the point. God is not appealing to something else to define himself. He just is. And in fact, God does give his name, but even his name speaks of his indefinability. I think that's a word. Come and correct me later. See, verse 15, look at what he says. He says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. Now, this is a bit hidden from us, but God's name, Yahweh, uh, is uh, put in capitals, uh, Lord, in our translations for all sorts of reasons, which you can contact me about later. Uh, but every time it says Lord in capital letters is God's name, Yahweh. But even his name uh, has that sort of sense of not being defined by something else. See, that the word is very similar to the Hebrew verb to be. And so it sounds kind of to a Hebrew ear um, like he is. So again, his name is pointing us to the fact that he cannot be defined by another. Now, why does this all matter? It's all very interesting, well, at least to me. Uh, Why does that matter? Well, notice, though, how he defines his name. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, 
has sent me to you. See, in one sense, God is not definable, but He binds Himself to His people, or rather, He binds Himself to His promises. And so, here's God saying to Moses, I am who I am, but I keep my promises. My promises matter. Now, if that was a bit much, come back in here, because here's the point. God is not doing the plagues. He's not doing the rescue. He's not doing the exodus as an end in itself, or just because he can. Rather, he is doing it to show us, to prove to us that he is committed to blessing this world. When he makes a promise, he doesn't mess around, and he wants us to see that. He wants us to see that when he makes promises to his people, he keeps them, and we need to know that. I don't know if this is just me, but um, you, you find yourself associating certain characteristics, don't you, with different names. Um, you hear people say, you don't look like a, a Darren, or you don't look like a Karen, um, or something like that. Now, I realize I'm on dangerous ground. I'm just checking around the room who's here and what names are here. But I think I'm safe with this one. See, if someone's called Hercules, you don't imagine, sorry if you are a Hercules, don't imagine someone who's kind of passive, who's short, perhaps uh, very timid, do you? You imagine someone pretty strong, pretty confident. I don't know if this is just me, but an Alfie is always a kind of fun-loving guy, the sort of guy you like to know to pop out for a walk with. If someone's called Tyson, you don't imagine someone who's soft and gentle, do you? Now, please send in your complaints later if any of you are called those names. But you see the point, don't you? We associate names with certain characteristics. But in the ancient world, that was a far bigger deal. The name was connected with the character. So we saw back in uh, last week that Moses' name means to be drawn out of water, and it pointed to God's miraculous rescue of him. And here's the thing, God himself, his name, he wants to be associated with certain characteristics. He wants us to be associated, he wants his name to be associated with keeping his promises to bless this world. Every time we read Lord, and maybe this is a good thing to do as we read our Bibles, think Yahweh and think promise keeper. Now, why does this matter to us that God does this? Well, first of all, God makes himself known. That might seem pretty obvious from this text, and it may be something we take for granted, but that is a profound uh, and significant truth. See, God is knowable. He's broken into this world and made his name known. See, a lot of people in our culture don't actually find the idea of God too unbelievable. Uh, If you do most censuses, you'll work out that most, the majority of people still believe in some sort of God. But what is difficult to stomach is the idea that God is knowable, that we can say what he's like, that we can describe his character. I came across an article uh, of, um, by a vicar, uh, of, 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 uh, no less, uh, who wrote this article called, God is unknowable. Stop looking for him and you will find faith. And here's what he says uh, about kind of this sense of Uh, Stop looking at dogma. Stop uh, trying to um, define God. Here's what he says. There is an exhilarating sense of newfound freedom. It releases us from the burden of cotoing to the dictates of a holy book. And it relieves us of the intellectual difficulties 
of accepting the dogmatic assertions of an ecclesiastical hierarchy. That's a posh way of saying uh, you don't have to listen to the church. Uh, We are liberated and can follow our own spiritual path. And that idea, it sounds very palatable, doesn't it, to our culture. Don't get too fixed down on what God's like. Be open, be liberal, uh, and you'll find your own spiritual path. But actually, if you push that further, that is a deeply terrifying idea. Because if there's a God, we will never know what he's like. I mean, what's to say that this God is good or bad? Lots of gods in the ancient world were pretty evil. How do we know he's good? Uh, What's to say this God cares or not? A lot of gods did not care about the people. How do we know this God does? Uh, What's to say God is fair or unjust? A lot of gods in the ancient world were pretty sneaky. What's to say this God is honest? And what's to say he's kind or mean? A lot of gods were very vindictive in people's ideas. What's to say this God is not? And what's to say that this God backs up his words with actions? What's to say this God keeps his promise? Now, it sounds very good, doesn't it, on the surface? Let's be open. Let's not be too dogmatic. And of of course, we need to listen carefully to what God says. But actually, that's not the path to liberty. Uh, That is the path to enslavement, to knowing that, to to always fear, fear God and what he's like. But the great truth of the Bible is that God has made himself known. Here's what uh, the New Testament uh, says uh, in John's Gospel. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, in the person of Jesus, this God is knowable. But secondly, why does this matter? Well, secondly, God wants us to know uh, this about him. See, notice what he sends, uh, says at the end of verse 15. This isn't just a, a message for Moses. He says at the end of verse 15, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob uh, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Now, remember doesn't mean a kind of vague sense of something. It means to bring to mind, to, to know. And God is saying, look, this action I'm going to take by sending the plagues, it is about my name, my character being known throughout all generations. See, salvation is not an end in itself. God wants us to learn from that. He wants us to know him personally. There can be this kind of caricature, can't there, of the gospel, that it's a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, that we kind of take the free pass from judgment and then kind of carry on with our lives. But that couldn't be further from the truth, could it? See, God saves us for something so that we may know him. Interestingly, when Jesus goes to the cross, just before he does, he says this in John 17, Father, the hour has come, the the hour for his death. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, to give him eternal life to all you have given him. So here's the message of salvation. He's given eternal life. And here's what he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. You see the point? Salvation is for a purpose, so that we may know God. Now, what does it mean to know God? Uh, What does that look like? Well, secondly, we see here there is a great problem with knowing God. 
Because these chapters also show us not only that God makes himself known, but just how difficult it is for Moses and others to know that. See, Moses' response through these chapters is a little bit embarrassing. Uh, Throughout these chapters, he raises every sort of objection you could think of. So just have a look at uh, some of those examples with me. Verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And verse 13, uh, what if I go to them and they say, what's his name? And then we've just read that bit. Uh, Four over the page, four verse one. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Or four verse 10 over the page again. But Moses said, oh oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Uh, And four verse 13. Oh my Lord, please send someone else. See, seven times no less in these chapters, Moses objects to what's being asked of him. Now, perhaps we can be a bit charitable to Moses. We can forgive him the first or second time. But actually, by the end of it, by 4 verse 14, we clearly see this has gone beyond a genuine questioning. We read verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. See, God reveals himself to Moses, but Moses just doesn't quite grasp it. See, to each of these objections, God says, look, I will be with you. Basically, don't worry. 3 verse 11, uh, back over the page, he says, who am I? And God says, I will be with you. Literally, I am with you. See, he should know what that means. Uh, for verse 30, uh, 3 verse 13, he says, what's your name? And he says, I am. See, I am the transcendent God who uh, is indefinable, and I am with you. He should have got it. And uh, have a look at 4 verse 12 when uh, Moses says, I'm not eloquent. God says um, in verse 11, who made man's mouth and who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? In other words, God is the God who made mouths. Moses, you really shouldn't worry about whether you can speak or not. See, Moses, he sees God, he hears God, but he just doesn't get it, does he? Now, why do we get that? Well, First of all, because it's true. See, this is one of the reasons I think the Exodus account isn't kind of myth, but actually true, because here we get the kind of warts and all portrayal of Moses, don't we? It's not the portrayal of a hero you would expect. Moses fluffs it several times, and it doesn't get airbrushed out. But the second reason we get Moses' reaction here is to show us the difference between knowing about and knowing. What do I mean by that? Well, last year, just before the first lockdown, we went away with the youth group um, for the Unite weekend away, and uh, it's probably one of the last holidays I had, Um, so yeah, just February last year. And um, part of that weekend away, we did um, climbing, and uh, it turned out that there were a few gaps, um, a few spaces to do climbing Uh, as well, and um, none of the other leaders volunteered, so I ended up uh, doing it uh, with a couple of others. And um, you may think to yourself, well, you're pretty tall anyway, what does climbing matter to you? But we saw this kind of big climbing wall. I mean, it must have been 100 metres in the air or something close. And um, I got kind of strapped up to go up to this wall, and the instructor said to me, "Um, don't worry, there's a kind of safety harness that kind of catches you as you fall. But he said to you, it will feel like you're falling for a little bit, but it, don't worry, it will kind of kick in, a bit like a kind of seatbelt. It kind of 
uh, kicks in and carries you down safely. Now, that didn't reassure me, to be honest. I didn't like the idea of falling at all. And so when I went up this wall, I was as cautious as you could be, uh, taking everything very carefully and then coming down very carefully as well. But then my competitive nature got the better of me, and I did a race against someone, and um, I went so fast, I stacked it, fell off the wall, and the thing caught me. And then I thought to myself, hang on, this is all right. And so I did it again and again, kind of almost jumping off by the end, sort of pretending to be Superman. Now, ask yourself the question, when did I know that harness would catch me? See, in one sense, I knew about it, didn't I? The instructor told me it will kick in, and I kind of thought, okay, he's got no reason to lie. But actually, it was really the moment where I felt it catch me and felt myself safely get to the ground. See, I knew about the strap, but I wasn't really living that out because I was still terrified as I kind of climbed up this wall. But the moment I felt that strap and was reassured, well, then you would say, I really knew so you see the point, don't you? There's kind of two types of knowing. There's knowing about, and then there's knowing for real. And the trouble is, Moses is stuck on that kind of first sense of knowing, knowing about. It's why he objects over and over, because he doesn't get the implications, what it means to trust God. And when you think about it, it's really quite staggering, isn't it? Because you think that a burning bush, well, that isn't burned, or an angel speaking to him, or a a walking stick that becomes a serpent would convince him. But even that, he doesn't know. But the thing is, what's true of Moses is really true of all of us, isn't it? It's very easy, isn't it, to stay in a kind of knowing about God. It's a different matter to really trust him, to lean back on him. Very easy to say things like, oh, I know God's good, but then our prayers don't get answered and then we think he's let us down. Very easy to say that God's completely satisfying, that you don't need anything other than him, but then after a few years of a very ordinary life, we can quickly go on to other things. Very easy, isn't it, to say that God's sovereign, that he works all things for the good of his people, but then a pandemic hits, and our lives get put on pause for a whole year, and many suffer, and we wonder, is God really sovereign as he says he is. See, knowing, real knowing, trust, is not automatic. It's not that God speaks truth. We put it in our heads and it's all fine. But actually, God wants us to know him like I knew the safety of that strap, that we can lean back on him, knowing that he will never let us down, knowing that he never breaks a promise. It's so much bigger, isn't it, than that kind of vague sense in which God exists. Um, Perhaps we've joined in this morning. We we don't disbelieve God. But actually, God wants something much more for us, doesn't he? He wants us to trust him, to know him. Now, how do we do that? What does it mean to do that as Christians? Well, thirdly and finally, we see here how knowing is possible. See, in this uh, account, things get a lot worse before they get better. You think that after God appears to Moses, right, we're ready to go with the plagues now. But even then, uh, we get another couple of chapters uh, showing us what happens. Now, the suffering really ramps up uh, in chapter 5. Not only are the people in slavery having to make bricks, but Pharaoh says, well, you're completely idle, and so you're going to have to make bricks uh, 
and collect the straw to make them. It's like your boss saying to you, I want the same amount of work, but you're going to uh, have no desk, you're going to have no chair, you're going to have no phone, you're going to have no computer, and you're going to be homeschooling as well. See, um, the people are in a wor- far worse state, and they cry out again. And look at what Moses says in chapter 5, verse 22. Here's the Moses uh, of uh, 5, verse 22. He says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Now, can you see the gravity of what Moses is saying here? I've spoken your name, your name which was meant to be about keeping promises, and you've not done what you've said. You've not delivered your people at all. You've not kept your promises. I guess it is a prayer that some of us may have said at some point, or or even saying today, God, what are you doing? Things have got worse. You haven't answered my prayers. What are you doing? But look at God's response to Moses at this point. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out. God says, look, Moses, I'm going to act. And how's he going to act? We'll look over the page to uh, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. You see what God's saying? Here's how you're going to know. Here's how you're going to know, Moses, and here's how the people are going to know that I am Yahweh. I am that promise-keeping God. See, Moses thinks that God's abandoned him. But God says to him, look at what I'm going to do, how I'm going to act, how I'm going to redeem you and your people. And actually, God's answer to Moses is the same answer he gives to us. How do we know God? How do we know he keeps his promises? Well, look at the way he redeems us. Look at his salvation. See, God has worked salvation again, not to, of course, rescue us from Egypt, but he has come down to rescue us from sin and death in the person of the Lord Jesus. He's redeemed us, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery, that binding to sin we all find ourselves with, and and the death which inevitably follows. We've seen God act with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment, but not with plagues, but with his own arms outstretched, nailed to a wooden cross, and with his great act of judgment falling on himself in the person of the Lord Jesus. And by that act, by that redemption... God says, we will know him. See, how do we know God is truly I am and truly the one who keeps his promises? Well, God says, look at my redemption, Moses, and then you will know. 
And likewise, we look at the cross and the resurrection, and we too know. How do we know God? How do we know He's for us? How do we know He keeps His promises? Well, God's answer, look at my salvation in the Lord Jesus. This year has been a tough year, hasn't it? And um, 2021 started pretty um, bleakly already. And I guess for some of us, our circumstances and the general mood of things might be shaping our view of God. But this is a great reminder, isn't it, for that not to be the case. That whatever our circumstances, God still is who He is. And He still keeps His promises. And so when He promises that He will work good for those he loves, he means it. He will deliver it. And when he promises that he will wipe each tear from our eyes, he means it. It will happen. And how do we know? Well, because he's worked redemption in the past, and he will complete that work in the future. We also see, don't we, that knowing is hugely important. It's hugely significant. And perhaps this morning, we've not kind of clocked that. We've got that sense in which God exists but we've not understood that actually he is about us knowing him. And the great news is we can know him. And how do we know him? Well, we look at the Lord Jesus and what he's like. And see, if we're Christian this morning, we've got the great privilege of knowing this God. He has saved us, but he's not saved us as an end in itself. He saved us so we may know him. We don't have to struggle like Moses alone, kind of trying to muster up the effort to, uh, to, to, to rely on him. But we've got much more information, haven't we? We've seen God act in salvation. And wonderfully, we've got his spirit with us who enables us to see Jesus clearly and to trust in him. And so this morning uh, and before next week, before we head into all the action of the plagues, Let us give thanks to God that he remembers us, he keeps his promises, and he wants us to know him. Let's pray. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you bind yourself to your people, that you have taken not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all of us as your people. We rejoice in that truth. And we pray, Father, as those people, you would help us to trust you and trust your promises, even uh, when it seems difficult. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.